I can't believe that our time together is nearly over. I've been praying that these studies will make a monumental difference in each one of our lives. Can you imagine the power of a whole movement of people who actually live out the values of Jesus? It would be like the book of Acts all over again. Today I want to tell you the story of a lady named Mabel Francis. As a very young child, Mabel felt called to be a missionary to Japan, and she never wavered from that call. When the policy of the Christian and Missionary Alliance was changed to allow for single women to go overseas, Mabel got in line very quickly, and in the year 1909 found herself in the island nation of Japan, a country with a deep commitment to the ancient religions of Shintoism and Buddhism. Preaching the good news about Christ in that land was very hard, but Mabel was an extraordinary lady. And in the power of the Spirit of the Savior, she worked hard and saw some results. In 1934, at the height of the Great Depression, word came from the United States that all CMA missionaries would be recalled from Japan. The economic realities were such that a retrenchment was necessary, though efforts would be made to redirect returning missionaries to other fields if possible. After days of agonizing prayer, Mabel felt that she clearly heard the voice of God telling her to take a huge risk. Just trust him, and stay in the place to which he had called her. So she resigned from the CMA, and when the other missionaries went home, she stayed, not knowing how she would be supported. That sounds like a faith-filled risk to me. And God provided for her needs. That was far from the last faith-filled risk this courageous lady took. In the later years of the 1930s, it was apparent that another world war was looming. But this time, Japan and the United States would be on opposite sides. Friends, both American and Japanese, pleaded with Mabel to return to safety in the land of her birth. But once again, after an extended time of prayer to seek the mind of the Lord, Mabel determined to stay in her adopted country, even though she knew it would mean classification when the war finally came as an enemy national, and with that classification would come internment. And who knew what else? Mabel stayed throughout the entire war, at first under house arrest and later in an internment camp, and God protected. When the war finally ended, Mabel had an amazing ministry to the survivors of Hiroshima and to the people of Japan, whose lives had been completely shattered by the devastation and destruction of the war. When she was 65, the war ended, but she still would not leave. She was there to welcome the Christian Missionary Alliance back when missionaries returned after the war. And in case you were wondering, she finished her career once again as a missionary of the CNMA. In 1962, now in her 80s, Mabel was awarded by the government of Japan with induction to the Fifth Order of the Sacred Treasure. It was the first time in history that this high honor had ever been conferred upon an individual who was still alive. The honor was given for her contribution, according to the official citation, to the welfare of the Japanese people in their distress and confusion at the time of their defeat. And for the long years spent in leading hundreds of Japanese to the knowledge of God, to peace of heart and mind, achieving God's purposes means taking faith-filled risks. This always involves change. I'd like to introduce you to another person who lives those values out right now in an equally challenging world. His name is Sammy Dagger.
the most important step in my life is I wanted to know the purpose of God for my life. And when I knew the purpose of God for my life is to preach the gospel, I had to change. I had to resign from my work at the Intercontinental Hotel and start preaching the gospel. Sabra and Shatila are two Palestinian camps in Lebanon. The militia came and attacked the camps and made a huge massacre there. They killed so many people, destroyed their homes and they left them with nothing. The Lord laid on my heart that I should go and help the people in Sabra and Shatila, the Palestinians. So we took blankets and we took food and we took medicine. I had a camper which I have used like a clinic and we start helping them. Uh, some of the militia people, they did not like our uh, uh, effort to help the Palestinians because they were considered uh, enemies. Uh, but the Lord uh, laid it in my heart that I have, even if they are our enemies, we have to love them and help them. But one night I was late to come home because of a Bible study. A man uh, rang the bell at uh, our door. My son, who was 13 at that time, opened the door and he put the gun in his chest and told him, tell your dad if he continue to help the Palestinian you are going to be killed. When I came at 11 o'clock at night that night, uh, I found my wife, my son and my daughter sitting in the lounge crying. And I asked them what's the matter, they told me. So I prayed with them, comfort them and send them to sleep. But I stayed all night praying before God and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? The verses which came to my mind, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. And uh, I kept on praying all night, Lord, my son's life is in danger. But the Holy Spirit kept on saying to me, you have to help those people in the camps. The verses came uh, so clear, love your enemy. And uh, so the second day I went and done exactly the same. At 10 o'clock in the evening the doorbell rang and I went in to open the door. And the man put the gun in my chest and he said, didn't your son tell you what happened last night? I said, yes, he did. And at that time, my wife came and stood between me and the gun. But I pushed her away and I said to the man who had the gun, you shoot, you coward. I thought to myself, if he shoots me, I'll die and my son would live. But I will be, have done the will of God to my life. By the Spirit of God, he rebuked him and he put his head down and left the house and uh, I have never seen his face again. I believe in my heart that God is asking everyone in the Middle East and in America and in Europe, every believer, uh, to take uh, charge and go and preach the Gospel of Christ because it's a matter of people spending eternity in heaven or in hell. Of course it means taking risks, it means leaving the comfortable life and going and preach the gospel even to our enemies because God's will not one should perish but all come to repentance. Uh, as for the rest of you, uh, you've been keeping track. We are coming now today to the last of seven core values that we have been examining.
And uh, as with all of them, when we come to the subject of being willing to take faith-filled risk, it's not just a Christian and Missionary Alliance value, but it's a biblical value. Uh, our key verse for today is, without faith it is impossible to please Him. And uh, very clearly the Scripture indicates to us that faith is essential to a life that is pleasing to God. We've seen some testimonies, Mabel Francis and Sammy Dagger, who have uh, taken great risk in their lives. I guess I've known uh, of Sammy Dagger since um, I first started in ministry myself many years ago. Uh, Sammy was an amazing um, young man who uh, was in the hotel business, and God spoke to his heart and called him to follow him and serve him. And he has always been the kind of person who was willing to take uh, risk whenever he felt God was putting something on his heart. Um, some of our Alliance missionaries that have uh, traveled with him in the Middle East um, have uh, learned that firsthand to, to their chagrin. Uh, there have been times when Sammy was taking Bibles across borders into countries where they were prohibited. And uh, he would roll up to a checkpoint at a border with a van load of Bibles. And, uh, you know, they would ask him what he was carrying. And uh, sometimes uh, he would just say straight up, well, I have a van load of Bibles here for people that I'm taking into the country. And uh, more often than not, they would just simply let him through because they thought, you got to be kidding me. I mean, nobody would say right out that they were carrying contraband, so they assumed he was joking and let him through. But he was, he's been that kind of a person uh, all along. Well, I want to talk this morning about uh, what faith is, because biblical faith is different from the world's perception of faith. Everyone has faith. Uh, they may not all admit it, but every single day there are things that we take by faith uh, in order to live. And everyone has that kind of faith. It's the assumption that things are going to continue uh, in the same vein and behave and act the same way. And people make those assumptions. Some people actually identify their faith. They are able to uh, kind of define it and explain it. And so what some people think of as faith is their confidence that they'll be able to accomplish something. You know, and that's like having faith in your abilities. I believe that I can uh, do uh, this given thing. I was uh, just finishing up this past week uh, taking a, a certification examination on a, a type of um, kind of talent survey that I've been trained to, to administer for, for people to help them identify, you know, what are your talents, what are your, what are your God-given abilities, what is the best niche uh, for you to fit into in life? The Christian and Missionary Alliance has a particular interest in this because it often uh, helps uh, people who are pastoral or missionary candidates to identify um, their, their natural giftedness from God, their natural talents, uh, as, you know, as well as uh, adding that to their spiritual gifts and uh, kind of praying through that process of where they belong. But anyway, I say that to say, that of uh, all of those natural talents, uh, some of the statistical findings of this research group are that only 30% of human beings 
have leadership talents. Uh, the other 70% do not. Only 30% of people have those natural aptitudes that, that enable them to lead people. And of those 30%, when you break that down, there are three categories or types of leadership. Uh, one they call initiator-developer, uh, one they call um, planners, and one they call managers. And you can kind of uh, figure out just from the naming of those what those roles are. Managers are people who are able to, uh, to get other people to work together in concert and focus on the goal and move forward in a given direction in order to achieve the, the desired ends of the group or the company or whatever they're trying to do. Planners are the kind of people that are always asking, you know, well, where are we going to be a year from now? Where are we going to be five years from now? How, where are we going to be ten years from now? How are we going to get there? What do we need to do to take the steps to move us uh, toward those desired ends? They're the people that are, their wheels are always turning about how to organize in such a way as to get where you want to be down the road. But initiator developers form an interesting category. They're the kind of people that want to go out and, and start stuff. You know, they want to go build the new thing. They want to invent something and promote it and build the company. They want to buy the franchise or even in the church planting realm, they want to go plant a new church. They don't want to come into an established pastorate. Uh, they want to go and start a new church in a whole new area and do something new or be a pioneer missionary or whatever like that. And it's interesting that among those who fall into that category of initiator, developer, leaders, they are also characterized by being risk takers. Part of their natural wiring is to be willing to take risk. And by statistical measurement, if they have a 50% chance of success, they're willing to go for it. They'll put everything on the line for a 50% chance of success. Well, that also means they have a 50% chance of failure. In fact, it's a coin toss. It could go either direction. But they're willing to take a risk with 50% confidence level. If you talk to them, they won't see it as 50%. They'll see it as about 85 or 95% confident. You know, I'm sure this is going to work. And they'll tell you that because they want to appear reasonable. But in their mind, what they're really thinking is, there's no chance of failure. I'm absolutely confident, you know, that we're going to win this thing. We're going to accomplish this thing. That's the kind of way that they move forward. Well, a lot of people are like that. They, they have faith in their ability or their confidence to move something forward and make it happen, even if the risk factors are 50-50. That's not biblical faith. I'm glad that God has wired people like that across the world and that there are risk takers who are willing to step out and develop new things. But when we're talking about faith, that is not the biblical definition nor is it simply blind faith. You know, I'm just kind of hoping in hope. I'm hoping every, it's going to sort of be an optimistic perspective. Everything's going to turn out all right. Well, guess what? Everything does not always turn out all right. Uh, having blind faith in what you hope will be the future sometimes can be naive in the extreme because things do not always 
uh, go as we would like for them to go. Fortunately, the Bible actually defines faith for us. And if you look in Hebrews chapter 11, that is the chapter in the Bible that we kind of refer to as the hall of fame of faith. The reason is, in Hebrews chapter 11, going uh, all the way back practically to Adam, there is a, a list of people and their exploits and the things that they accomplished that the writer of Hebrews gives us as examples of men and women who had great faith in God. They trusted Him in significant ways. And as he introduces this chapter to encourage and inspire those who were becoming discouraged in their following of Jesus Christ, he gives us this definition in verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Biblical faith, rather than simply being the willingness to take a risk on a chance, or faith in faith, or blind faith in naive optimism, biblical faith actually has substance and evidence. It's characterized by something called assurance and confidence that is based not on our own ability not on the odds of success, but it is based on having heard the Word of God. Believers are called to take steps of faith on the basis of what God has said. That is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, what God has said can come to us in more ways than one. We have His written Word, His infallible and inerrant guide that describes for us how to live. Many times in life, we are called upon to exercise faith in the written Word of God, in the assurance that God, who cannot lie, has spoken truthfully, and we can stake our life on it. And that uh, means that we may have to make hard decisions in a workplace, or hard decisions uh, in, in some situation where there is temptation to compromise. Uh, perhaps we are asked to lie or misrepresent truth. In a, in a working situation, or to cheat on a contract, or some other kind of thing. And there has to be that willingness to trust God based on His revealed truth. To say, I'm going to, to base my action on the Word of God and, and take the consequences, because I believe that it is better to follow God than it is to follow anyone else. In fact, when the disciples uh, were arrested shortly after Pentecost for preaching the gospel, and they were solemnly charged by the legal authorities, do not speak any more in the name of Jesus. And they said, we must obey God rather than men. We cannot not talk about 
what Jesus Christ has given us. We must speak the gospel message. There was great risk involved in that. But they had to obey God rather than men. And so uh, the scripture gives us part of the foundation for faith-filled action when we take uh, our stand on the word of God, whatever the cost of that. But there's another kind of word of God that comes to us, and that's the word of God that comes in the moment of our circumstances as we pray. You don't find this word in the Bible per se, but you find it in your personal relationship and walk with God and Jesus Christ. Mabel Francis in Japan faced some challenging moments in her career. One of those, as uh, John Soper told the story, was when during the Depression, all of CNMA missionaries were told to leave Japan, come back home. Mabel Francis, in prayer, felt the conviction of God speaking to her that she was to trust the Lord and stay where she was, even though it meant resigning from the mission and having no guaranteed source of income. That's the kind of faith that is demonstrated when one hears a word from God in one's personal life. Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? The same kind of decision came again when she was faced with the uh, advent of war and knowing that it would mean her incarceration as an enemy national. She felt strongly that God was leading her to stay there. Did you listen to Sammy Dagger's testimony? He did not take lightly the threat against his family or against his son. But what he did was he spent the night in prayer And I listened carefully as he said, the Holy Spirit said to me, love your enemies. You must go back to the camps. You must do the things that I have called you to do. Sammy Dagger is not a man who takes stupid risk. He is a man who seeks the face of God and waits to hear direction from the Holy Spirit. But as he receives that direction, he is willing then to stand upon it. And so his risk was to trust God in the situation. It doesn't always turn out exactly the way it turned out for Sammy. But the reality is, is that when we obey God, we never truly, ultimately fail. About 40 years ago, Right around this time of year, uh, my wife and I were praying about our future, and we were praying about where God wanted us to go to school. We were in a a school that was um, not very conservative as we were preparing for ministry, and uh, in the time of prayer, uh, we heard God say to us, I want you to go to the school that I have shown you. Now, We knew what school that was because in the last uh, six months, Tacoa Falls College had kept rising uh, in our minds and thoughts, and it had come up in conversation, and we had met someone from there, and it was kind of on our radar, as we say now. And so um, as we prayed about that, that was the conviction that we had, is that God wanted us to go to to Tacoa Falls College. The problem was... 
it was uh, nearing the end of August. We had not applied. We had not been accepted. Um, we were newly married. We didn't have a lot of capital. And um, we had a 12-year-old uh, car, a Ford Falcon, that uh, her dad had given us as a wedding gift. And uh, we could still fit all of our belongings in the smallest U-Haul trailer you could rent. There are days when I wish that were still true. <laughs> it's not, not even possible to think that way anymore. But anyway, uh, as we prayed, we felt the conviction of God saying, Go to the school that I have shown you. Well, now, the issue was, is that classes were going to start, I think, the next Monday, and this was like a Tuesday or something. And uh, so, uh, what do you do? Well, we, we rented the U-Haul. Um, we did not have a lease that we had to break, so we were able to end our time in the apartment, get our uh, deposit back. Uh, in those days, the deposit was was like today a month's rent, only it wasn't hundreds and hundreds of dollars. I think it was less than $200. And we got that back, and that was going to be our operating capital to uh, to get to North Georgia to go to Tacoma Falls College. And so uh, one evening, I think it was a Wednesday, as I recall, um, we may have gone to prayer meeting at our local church, and we started our drive from West Palm Beach, Florida, to Tacoma Falls College in the 12-year-old Falcon with a U-Haul trailer behind it. And uh, we looked a little bit like the Beverly Hillbillies because <laughs> we had the back seat full, too, and, and off we went. Well, I wasn't very far down the road. I was on the Florida Turnpike kind of angling toward I-4 and 75 to start the northward trek and uh, doing about 50 miles an hour, and I said to Rowena, I, I think I ought to kind of, check out the maximum speed so I know how hard I'm pushing the engine. So I'm going to just accelerate and see how fast it'll go. So I pressed the accelerator all the way to the floor, and the speed stayed at 50. And it stayed at 50, and it never moved above 50. And I realized that was the maximum speed. I already had the car topped out at, you know, wide open and I thought, well, this can't be good. And about the time I was having those thoughts, things began to misfire and knock and clang. And I thought, oh, dear, uh, this is uh, the first of challenges. So I pulled off into a filling station with the car, uh, you know, knocking and banging. And, uh, and I uh, pulled up uh, to the gas pumps and thought, okay, Lord, now what? Well, the mechanic heard us arrive. And uh, he came out and said, can I help you with the car? And I'm thinking we have very limited funds, and we've just got enough for gas and maybe down payment on an apartment when we get to Tacoa, and I don't know, you know, what we're going to do here. And so I'm saying to him, well, we don't have a lot of money, like I needed to tell him that. You know, it was probably pretty obvious. And he says, well, let me take a look at it for you. So he opens the hood, and he starts pulling off distributor caps, and plug wires and looking at plugs and taking points out. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this is because it was typical on the Florida Turnpike to for motorists to just absolutely get really gigged, you know, big time by uh, high price repairs that maybe weren't even needed. And these thoughts are running through my mind. He says, I hey, need a new set of points. These plugs are shot, and I got a plug wire that's shorting out here. And, 
you know, when he starts going through this, and I'm thinking, oh dear. And so we're praying. And during the course of the evening, I, I bought a cup of coffee, and I bought the mechanic a cup of coffee and took it to him. And uh, so he's working on the car, and he puts in new points, and he puts in a plug wire, and he puts in some plugs. And he says, well, I think that'll get you where you need to go. And I tentatively said, well, how much do I owe you? And he said, mm, I think a cup of coffee will do it. I was astounded. He not only didn't charge labor, he didn't charge for the parts. Go on your way. So, off we go. We're headed north again. And uh, in Valdosta, Georgia, uh, we heard this terrible sound begin again. And as we traveled north out of Valdosta, some friends uh, overnight, um, I realized that uh, what sounded like uh, bad trouble was a blown head gasket. And so we pulled off again at a filling station. It was one of those shyster mechanics. And um, he said, um, I'll buy your car for two bus tickets. And I'm thinking, I don't think so. And I said, I'm going to drive it back to Valdosta. And he said, you're not going to make it. You're going to have a big towing bill, and then I won't be able to pay for those uh, bus tickets for you. And uh, we prayed about it and felt like God said, go back to Valdosta. So we called our friend and went back to Valdosta, took the car to the Ford dealership the next morning, and we've been praying, Lord, you sent us to Tekoa. Uh, we feel like you've sent us there. We're having all these troubles and I had uh, my Bible in Philippians uh, chapter 4. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, rejoice. And I had left my open Bible on the steering wheel of the car when I delivered it to the Ford shop, not uh, expecting the mechanic to have to get in the car and move things around. And so when we got our car back a little later in the day, the mechanic had moved my Bible. I still have that Bible. There's a greasy thumbprint right next to Philippians 4, 4, where it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I cherish that thumbprint because they only charged us $50 to repair the head gasket. And so by this time, Rowena's dad thought, well, this couple's kind of out of their mind, but I'm going to follow them and make sure they get on their journey safely. And so uh, we were north of Macon when the radiator sprang a leak. And we, again, it's 5 o'clock, and by now it's Friday, and who's open at 5 o'clock on Friday and we come to the end of the exit with steam pouring out of the car, you know, and we get to the end of the ramp, and Rowena and I turned to each other and prayed and said, God, which way do we go? There's four filling stations, one on each corner. Which way do we go? And the Lord uh, pointed out a filling station, and we drove into it and uh, opened the hood, and there's the water spewing out of the radiator. And the guy says, oh, you got a radiator leak. He's like, yeah, no kidding. And uh, we said, you know, when we get this fixed, he says, man, I don't know anywhere you can get this fixed on a Friday afternoon at 5 o'clock. But he said, I'll help you pull it out and you can run it up the street and see if so-and-so is open. And we pulled the radiator out and her dad drove it up the street and this guy patched it up. He was still in it, just about to close. 
patched it up on a Friday evening. No charge for the radiator repair, no charge for labor from the filling station attendant. Put the radiator back in the... I think by this time, you know, it's like Saturday, and uh, we roll up on campus and pull in. It's nothing for day. We announce our presence. Send a letter ahead saying we're coming. No application, no acceptance, but we're coming. And since the morning, we show up in the registrar's office, and it turned out he became our future pastor because he featured one of the small churches in the area, and as we went in and presented ourselves to start classes, they said, well, you didn't apply. Well, we didn't have time to apply. God just told us this last week to come. Well, how are you going to pay for it? I don't know. We're going to trust God. Well, do you have a job? No, not yet, but we're trusting God for a job. Well, do you have a place to live? Well, not really, but we're trusting God for an apartment. And... By the end of the day, we had an apartment, 85 a month furnished. We had jobs, and they said, well, you're here. You might as well start classes. And they gave us the schedule when we went to our first classes and started that way. That's not blind faith. That is confidence in the Word of the Lord. When God speaks and you know you've heard His voice, that's the assurance of things hoped for. God has spoken. The second step in the process is, faith is the evidence of things not seen. You know, if Abraham had heard the Word of God say to him, get up from Ur of the Chaldees and you and your wife and your servants and leave your family, and go to the land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make of you a great multitude. Abraham could have said, God, thank you for talking to me. I'm so glad to hear your voice. The only problem is, it's just my wife and me, we're midlife, and we have no children. And, you know, if you give me a son, then I'll have a reason to believe what you're saying. The Bible says that Abraham believed God, and he left Ur of the Chaldees, and he went out into the wilderness. I mean, here was an established businessman. Don't think primitive cave people in those days. They, they weren't. They, they were established. They had all kinds of uh, accoutrements, and for their day, uh, blessings. Uh, those uh, are uh, archaeologists who have excavated in Ur of the Chaldees have discovered indoor plumbing, and flush toilets of a sort, and storm drains in the road systems, and they have discovered uh, merchandising and marketing and, and ways of uh, running businesses. And Abraham was an established man in a, in a, you know, a populous city. And God's voice spoke to him saying, Go and leave all of this and go to the wilderness. And go where I tell you, and I'm going to show you a land and make of you a great nation. Abraham did not wait for proof. Despite all odds to the contrary, and the fact that they were well into their years already with no children. The Bible says Abraham believed God. The obedience to the voice of the Lord is the evidence 
of things not seen. Faith that has substance. Mabel Francis stayed where she was. Sammy Dagger went back to the Palestinian camps. The evidence is when we act on what we have heard from God. And this is the definition of faith. It is not blind faith. It is not optimism based in in nothing. It is not hope against hope. It is not some kind of belief in faith. It is the confidence that when I have heard the Lord, He is trustworthy. I can rely upon Him and I can act in obedience and take the next step. And even when there's opposition and even when there's resistance, you know, a lot of people would have caved. The first night, the gunman showed up at the door. This is my son. God, you never asked me to risk my children. This is craziness. I'm not going back anymore. But instead, Sammy said, what do you want us to do, Lord? What do you want me to do? What, what is your direction in this circumstance? Now we've met opposition. And God says to him, Go back and trust me. And so he did what the Lord said to him. In fact, as we progress down in Hebrews chapter 11 a little bit further, we come to verse 6. The writer of Hebrews makes this case very clearly. And this is to a group of people that were struggling. uh, They were being oppressed and they were suffering for their faith as Christ followers. And as a consequence of that, they were considering uh, turning away and going back to their old ways. And, and the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage them to trust God and to believe. And he says in verse 6, For without faith, it is impossible to please the Lord. It's impossible to please God without faith. And then he explains that. He says, for he that comes to God must believe that God is. Now, you know, that applies to a lot of people. Deists believe that God is. They don't think he does very much, but they believe he exists. Mere theists today believe there's evidence for God. But they don't know that they can relate to Him in a personal way. Many times Christians fall into this trap. They don't deny the existence of God. They're trusting Him for salvation, but they doubt very seriously whether God is really interested in their lives or that He will give them practical direction and guidance for each step of the way. And so, as a consequence, they really don't expect much. But the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. In other words, that when we seek the Lord, he will respond to us. And you will search for me, and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. The Scripture is very plain that those who Seek God with all of their being. Lord, I want your will. I want to do your will. I want to be in your will. I want to walk with you. That God will reward those who seek Him in that way. That He will respond to them. That He is personally involved in every person's life who is willing to 
draw near to him and follow his direction. And so the passage is, without faith it is impossible to please God, but it is a faith that believes that not only is God there, but that he is here, and that he is active in my life, and that I can trust him to lead me and to guide me and to reward me and to bless me, because doing the will of God pleases him, and he is willing to show us the path. I'm going to conclude this morning with the video story of the Thompsons in Vietnam. We learn at the end of the video that because of their commitment to Jesus Christ, the church in Vietnam grew from 60,000 to over a million since the time of the Tet Offensive in 1968. What is not said to us in the video is that because of their faithfulness, there was great inspiration to their families and to their children, and that one of their sons, David Thompson, who was away at school during the Tet Offensive, made a commitment to follow in the steps of his parents and to be obedient to Jesus Christ. He is the one whom we've heard from uh, that is the, the chief surgeon at the Bangalore Hospital in West Africa. And as he continued on in his studies and became a missionary doctor, God honored and blessed his life, and he has been used mightily of God to expand uh, that mission in West Africa. It's hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people have come to Christ. He could have lived a life of bitter selfishness, as a consequence of the outcome of his parents' faith, but instead he followed in their footsteps. And now, in a time of life when he could easily retire and say, you know, I've done enough, I'm 60 years old, I've been on the mission field for 35 years, I've done my share, Uh, he and Becky uh, have moved to Egypt to continue the work of God as long as God gives them strength and life and energy. And so the story goes on and on, and the end of it has yet to be told. Watch this morning as we hear the faith of his parents in Vietnam in the 1960s. My name is Thomas Harbin Stebbins, and uh, I'm related to Ruth Thompson. She was my older sister. She and I had one thing in common. We were both passionate about missions. She was appointed with her husband, Ed Thompson, to Cambodia, where they spent 13 years. Ed was one of the best speakers I have ever heard. He'd go from village to village, but in the 13 years that they served in Cambodia, they could count on one hand the number of people that they had led to Christ. When Prince Sihunuk, kicked all the Americans out of Cambodia, she and her husband, Ed Thompson, asked the Alliance to send them to Vietnam because the tribal group that they were just beginning to reach also lived across the border in Vietnam. A pastor and his wife came to dissuade them from going to Vietnam. You can't go to Vietnam. Vietnam's at war. And Ed said, we must go to Vietnam. We are immortal until our task is done. God wants us in Vietnam. 
The pastor's wife started to pull the clothes out of the drum that my sister was packing. She said, but you're crazy, Ruth. You're crazy. You'll get killed. And Ruth said, I'm not crazy. I'm constrained by the love of Christ. If I get killed, I get killed. But I must obey Christ and go to Vietnam. After learning French and Cambodian for 13 years, then they studied Vietnamese for a year at the Dalat School up in the Highlands. They were determined to master the Hmong language. And it was during that time that they were caught in the Tet Offensive. There had been a peace negotiation that both sides would cease fire during the Tet celebration. But uh, mixed up with the firecrackers, there was the boom, boom, boom of rockets, the rat-a-tat-tat-tat of machine guns. And the North Vietnamese soldiers swarmed onto the compound of the alliance where Ruth and Ed lived to attack the Vietnamese base behind them. Ed and Bob Seymour, who lived next door, dug out a garbage pit and made it into a bunker. Ruth and Ed left their house and went down into the bunker. Two of the nurses went to get help for Carolyn Griswold that was in one of the houses that collapsed. One of them came running back. She headed for the bunker. And the North Vietnamese soldiers bum, 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 machine gunned her and she fell dead in the bunker. And to make sure she was dead, they threw a hand grenade in the bunker, which of course exploded and killed uh, Ruth and Ed. I was first a bit angry with God, but it didn't take long for me to realize uh, that he was fulfilling his purpose for each of their lives and that there were those who witnessed by death as well as those who witnessed by life. And I knew that only good could come out of it because our God is sovereign and all things work together for good. They covered over the bunker grave and that became the grave, this grave site for Ruth Welting, Ed, and Ruth Thompson. And I carved into that tombstone the verse John 12, 24. Except a kernel of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. I've said many times they impacted many more people in their death than they did in their life. How do you explain the tremendous harvest that we're having in Vietnam without one missionary there? A growth from 60,000 to 1 million. Only one explanation. When they saw that the messengers of the gospel were willing to lay their lives down for Jesus Christ, they said, this must be the truth. And you know, when tribal people come to Christ, they don't come to Christ as individuals. They come as whole villages. And village after village after village, especially in the highlands, among the mountain people, came to faith in Jesus Christ. And today, there are strong churches all over Vietnam because of the death of the missionaries.
Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus. We recognize that for most of us here, the kinds of risk that we take in our obedience to you do not compare with the supreme risk and sacrifice that others have made. And yet for us, they are still difficult choices. They require faith and confidence to speak the truth, to refuse to break a contract or to lie for a business, to change direction in our lives and go somewhere new and do something different that we don't have any circumstantial evidence to support, but we've heard your voice. To live day by day by faith and obedience to your will. I pray, Father, that you would make us a people of great faith. That we would be willing to take those faith-filled risks when we have heard your word to act in obedience upon it, knowing that you are a trustworthy God and that you will not fail and that your kingdom will grow because of our obedience and trust in you. Lord, move upon us this day to be people who live life differently, not looking to the world for practical wisdom, but looking to you for spiritual direction to follow your leading. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.